Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. We are smack dab in the middle of that time of year when the word resolution is getting bandied about. This word, resolution, has its roots in Latin, and it consists of two parts. The RE, which is a prefix meaning again or back, and solution, which can be traced back to the Latin action noun solutio for a loosening, or solvo, or I loosen. So resolution as a word thus suggests a separation or disentanglement of one thing from something it is tied up with, or the process of reducing things into simpler forms, which is pretty much what I do with this podcast. So this episode of Postwoke is designed to inspire you to make this particular commitment for 2022. Do not trust the science. Science is to be questioned. Religion is where you aim your unconditional faith. Do not trust the science. Disentangle yourself from this corporate media-created concept. Loosen its grip and reduce it into its simpler forms. And to help make that happen, right after this short break, I'll be sharing some crucial but forgotten history. Hello, post-woke listeners. I'm here to tell you about a new policy with this podcast. Every time, starting in January, every time I have a new episode to share, for the first couple of days, it will be available only to paid subscribers. That will be for a couple of days. After that, at some point, I will release it to all uh, the general public and, of course, all email subscribers. This is just to give more of a bonus to those who are choosing to pay and support the podcast and hopefully to give more motivation for people to consider becoming paid subscribers. And you could do that at mickeyz.substack.com. And for as little as $5 a month, you could become a paid subscriber and support this podcast. So I thank you for understanding and I thank you in advance for considering to be a paid subscriber. So on that note, let's get back to the show. Imagine, if you will, a time when a billionaire controls the medical system. Now, sure, this musing invokes images of Bill Gates in 2021, but more than a century ago, a man richer than Gates created the template. Understanding this type of history lesson goes a long way in helping you make informed and self-loving choices today. So let's take things back to the year 1916, because on September 29th of that year, John D. Rockefeller became the world's first ever confirmed billionaire. By the time Rockefeller died in 1937, his net worth, adjusted in today's dollars, was possibly as high as $400 billion. For context, Elon Musk, allegedly today's richest human, is worth $278 billion. Rockefeller amassed that fortune by pioneering the concept of a monopoly. The Standard Oil Company, of which he was a founder, chairman, and major shareholder, controlled more than 90% of the petroleum market. As Rockefeller once said, competition is a sin. 
At the turn of the 20th century, Rockefeller also turned his attention to the creation of new compounds from the oil he controlled. These were called petrochemicals, and they first manifested in a wide range of plastic items. But John Dee was focused on far more than plastic bags or cups. He closely monitored scientific breakthroughs within the realm of medicine. For example, as vitamins were first being discovered, he saw the opportunity to artificially synthesize them by using, you guessed it, petroleum. Suddenly, organically occurring compounds could be patented and owned. Life itself would have a copyright. This sparked Rockefeller's interest in amassing even more billions by influencing how medical training was carried out in the U.S. and expanding and dominating the pharmaceutical industry. In the early 1900s, holistic treatments were equally as possible as what would later become known as Western medicine. Licensed doctors, particularly those west of the Mississippi River, were plying their trade by using more than a little natural and herbal medicine. This approach was fused with knowledge gleaned from traditions ranging from European to Native American. The problem, as Rockefeller saw it, was that such natural elements were available to anyone. Where's the, process, where's the profit in that? Remembering his own credo of competition being a sin, John Dee's first step was to purchase part of the German pharmaceutical company, IG Farben. Side note, IG Farben was the same German chemical cartel that would soon manufacture Zyklon B, the poison gas used in the Nazi gas chambers. With the drug manufacturing company under his control, all Rockefeller had to do was use his vast wealth and power to drum natural medicine out of business. More than 100 years ago, there was a wide range of options available to anyone who was seeking medical assistance. This included herbal medicine, chiropractic, naturopathy, homeopathy, and other modalities now called holistic or traditional. At the same time, business interests were beginning to monetize any and all forms of healthcare. As already mentioned, the most powerful entity involved in this effort was John D. Rockefeller and his oil empire. His first step was to hire Abraham Flexner, a respected educator, to compile a book-length report on the state of U.S. medical schools. Like any corporate-funded research, Flexner, Flexner's work had an agenda, and he delivered what the richest man in world history wanted. Now, to be clear, a small portion of Flexner's research was helpful because there were some questionable practitioners and practices that needed to be reined in. And there's obviously merit to the idea of standardizing medical training to some degree. But again, such standards are only as legitimate as the people and interests imposing them. If John Dee wanted to eliminate the sinful competition, it wouldn't be so hard for him to do so. This would clear a way for him to demonize and in some cases criminalize alternative therapies, normalize a pharmaceutical-based approach to medicine, and increase the wealth of he himself, Rockefeller, and Standard Oil via the use of petrochemicals. Now, to follow are just some of the outcomes of the Rockefeller-funded Flexner Report. Assigning monopoly power to the American Medical Association, AMA, when it came to granting medical school licensure in the U.S. Smear campaigns against any practitioners of traditional healing, 
including jailing some of the doctors that persisted in such practices, the reduction of courses on nutrition, and increased emphasis on drug treatment, firing senior faculty at schools that resisted adherence, creating a false division between scientific medicine and public health. Preventative medicine and population health would no longer be considered the responsibility of physicians, restricting attendance at medical schools to men only. Flexner also recommended and got all but two historically black medical schools closed. Thanks to Rockefeller and Flexner, the number of medical schools in the U.S. dropped from 160 in 1904 to only 66 in 1935. With so few institutions in place, all of them male, virtually all white, and all of them marching in lockstep with their pill for every ill mentality, it became simple to maintain full control over what healing would mean to the industrialized world. Rockefeller and Flexner ushered in a profit-driven brand of corporate medicine called allopathic. To this day, more than a century later, this paradigm is accepted virtually without question by the vast majority of humans, particularly in the West. Now, for the record, I am not saying that all alternative therapies are good or that all pharmaceuticals are bad. I am pointing out that our collective perception of healing is not an accident. It wasn't created by a preordained theology or an unstoppable force of nature. The way most of us view medicine, and yes, that includes the COVID-19 shots, is the result of deliberate measures by those who profited the most from it. This podcast episode is my attempt to offer a counterbalance to the general consensus that science is the ultimate indicator of one's intelligence. 2020 and 2021 were not banner years for nuance. And this includes the widespread concepts of because science or trust the science and all the people who believe in that. These are the kind of folks who will seemingly accept anything uttered by a man in a white coat. It's gotten to the point where these folks, if they wanted to win an argument, they would simply label their own evidence as science and thus, in their mind, squash all debate. Claiming to be on the side of science, they feel, is enough to discount any differing viewpoints because, well, science. Anyone who doesn't march in lockstep is obviously a moron or, heaven forbid, a conspiracy theorist. So this episode will be radical in that it addresses the pro-science perspective at the very root, asking this question, is science worthy of the cult that's been built around it? And to try answering that query, I could talk about any one of the countless gifts that have been bestowed upon us by science over the years. The list is long enough to warrant a 10-part Netflix series. It includes, for example, get ready, the Tuskegee study, mercury fillings, chlorofluorocarbons, veal crates, electroshock therapy, napalm, mustard gas, automatic weapons, sonic weaponry, directed energy weapons, weapons in general, surgical experiments without anesthesia on slaves, deforestation, Vioxx, DDT, eugenics, GMOs, fossil fuels, the Milgram experiments, factory farming, the medicalization of the birthing process, vivisection, Mountaintop mining, MK Ultra, 
conversion therapy, forced sterilizations, prefrontal lobotomies, waterboarding, deep sea bottom trawling, Accutane, landmines, and the electric chair, to name but a few of the innumerable options, and I haven't yet mentioned television, cell phones, automobiles, automobile culture, the internet, social media, and artificial intelligence. So let's break this down into some easily digestible bites. If you have fallen in love with scientists over the past two years, by all means, please allow me to introduce you to Ch Chester M. Southam. In 1952, he injected unknowing inmates at the Ohio State Prison with live cancer cells. Eleven years later, he did the same to 22 elderly patients at the Jewish Chronic Disease Hospital in Brooklyn. Why would a man of science do such a thing? Simple. He wanted to, quote, discover the secret of how healthy bodies fight the invasion of malignant cells, close quote. Despite a cover-up, Southam's atrocities were exposed, and he was given a harsh punishment of, wait for it, one-year probation. By the late 1960s, the American Cancer Society elected him their vice president. The Because Science hive mind should also be enamored with the University of Iowa researchers Wendell Johnson and Mary Tudor, creators of what is now known as the Monster Study. In 1939, Johnson and Tudor conducted an experiment on 22 orphan children. One group was given positive speech therapy. The others got negative speech therapy. Using science as their guide, the researchers left the negative group with speech problems they retained for the rest of their lives. And who doesn't appreciate the doubly dubious intersection of science and the military? A fine example occurred in 1956 and 1957 when the U.S. Army released millions of infected mosquitoes into the cities of Savannah, Georgia and Avon Park, Florida. Their scientific goal was to see if the insects would spread dengue fever and yellow fever. And what a success it was. Hundreds of unknowing civilians presented with symptoms like respiratory problems, stillbirths, fevers, encephalitis, typhoid, and death. And if science is your new fetish, you'll certainly love what researchers at Harvard University did in the late 1940s. They tested a synthetic estrogen called ditystilbestrol on pregnant women without their knowledge at the lying-in hospital of the University of Chicago. This scientific wizardry resulted in an abnormally high number of miscarriages and babies born with low birth weight. But hey, to question the white lab coats responsible would be tantamount to ignorance, right? Which brings us neatly to the major topic of the day. Vaccineologists consider the Stanley A. Plotkin Award to be the equivalent of a Nobel Prize in their lucrative field. To qualify for this accolade, the nominee should be quote, an individual who has made significant contributions to the field of vaccinology or areas of related science that have impacted the lives of children and the specific area of pediatric infectious diseases, close quote. Sounds noble. 
this Plotkin dude sure must have been special to have his name connected to such a distinction. After all, his book, Vaccines, is the standard reference on the subject of jabs. He is also an editor with the Clinical and Vaccine Immunology Journal, which is published by the American Society for Microbiology in Washington, D.C. He is euphemistically called the godfather of vaccines. Here are some more details from Plotkin's official bio. Until 1991, he was professor of pediatrics and microbiology at the University of Pennsylvania, professor of virology at, at the Star Institute, and at the same time, director of infectious diseases and senior physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He sounds like someone who has dedicated his life to helping children, right? No wonder they named the award after him. But what did he do after 1991? Well, he left the University of Pennsylvania and the Children's Hospital to become medical and scientific director for a vaccine manufacturer. After that, he went on to serve as a consultant for biotechnology firms, nonprofits, and governments. In 2017, Plotkin co-founded the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. So those last parts do raise a few questions, questions as in deposition questions. Question one, have you ever used orphans to study experimental vaccines? Dr. Plotkin, yes. Question two, have you ever used the mentally handicapped to study experimental vaccines? After hesitating until his own writing was, was cited, Dr. Plotkin said, yes. Have you ever experimented on the children of mothers in prison or jail? Dr. Plotkin, yes. Did you do so in the Belgian Congo? Dr. Plotkin, Yes. Did that experiment involve almost one million people? Dr. Plotkin, yes. These are the precise words of Dr. Stanley Plotkin, godfather of vaccines and the guy they named the big prize after, in a 1973 letter to the New England Journal of Medicine. Quote, the question is whether we are to have experiments performed on fully functioning adults and on children who are potential contributors to society or are to perform initial studies in children and adults who are human in form, but not in social potential, close quote. Dr. Stanley Plotkin is still alive. He's won countless awards as recently as 2014. He's regularly called upon to validate the COVID-19 genetic therapy shots erroneously called vaccines. He remains an esteemed colleague of, among other people, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Plotkin has even joined Fauci in pushing parents to line their children up for the untested COVID jab. So will you please tell me again why you trust big pharma, big science, the billionaires, and all the other sociopaths pushing an experimental medicine on you and your family? And this brings us back to the madness of the past two years. I often ask myself, why do I think, believe, or feel what I do? Are these my thoughts, beliefs, values, ideas, and opinions, or have they been implanted by years or decades or centuries of propaganda and conditioning? You can believe that the COVID-19 vaccine is safe, but there is no rational reason to assume so. Yet after 22 months of being scared out of your wits, many humans would inject anything into their bodies if they believed it would just reduce the overwhelming presence of fear. 
The captains of industry from John D. Rockefeller to today's robber barons were and are acutely aware of this. In fact, they actively cultivate such an environment in the name of creating a larger pool of compliant consumers. By all indications, this social experiment has been an unmitigated success. Information is a commodity doled out in minuscule and deceptive portions. It is naive to expect corporate-owned media or corporate-funded politicians to supply you with the ammunition you need to grow independent from them. It has also become self-sabotaging and or self-serving to expect that any rando on the interwebs has carefully vetted every tweet, meme, or video they share. Therefore, life in a disinformation state requires us to do the grunt work if we wish to fashion an informed and open-minded opinion. So here's some suggestions. Look beyond your newsfeed and your contacts list. Question your own assumptions. Accept the possibility that some, if not most, of what you believe may be founded on untruths. This path not only emancipates your mind, it also helps you better understand the viewpoints of those with whom you disagree. It's time to dis rediscover the subversive pleasure of intellectual self-defense. It's time for a 2022 and beyond New Year's resolution. I will not trust the science in 2022. Embracing this perspective and this commitment will demonstrate that you indeed can change the world. To stay focused in that kind of mindset, I just want to remind you that the examples I gave in this podcast to highlight how science cannot be and should never be reflexively trusted, these examples are just a tiny, a minuscule sampling of what goes on every day right up until today. In fact, it's more prevalent now because science is more connected and more involved in every aspect of our life. So don't allow yourself this luxury that somehow um, these things happened in the past and now we fixed them. I urge you to just take the time to look into this. Just don't trust the science, trust the media, and so on. You can factor in what you get from them, but to, to form an, an, a useful and informed opinion requires you to put in some work. I know I have a tendency to throw a lot of stats and a lot of history at you, but when people, when anybody ever complains about this, I immediately identify it as disingenuous because I grew up blue collar in New York City as a pretty major sports fan. And to this day, I listen to sports podcasts and I talk to people about sports and men or women, when the sports conversation comes up, they can rattle off history and stats till the cows come home. So don't tell me that, that my history or stats are overwhelming. You are choosing to not want to hear the history and stats that I'm providing, but meanwhile, you might be able to tell me who won the Academy Award for Best Actor in 1938 or who had the most home runs in 1962. Our brains are more than capable of processing the type of information I present here. So I just wanted to throw this out there that it is no excuse to say it's too much information. No, you, our lives are at stake here. Our future is at stake here. So I urge you, if this felt a little bit too much, it's a relatively short episode. Go back and listen again. Give it the focus that it deserves because the stakes have never been higher.
And on that note, I will be right back with my story of the week. Hello, I must be going. I cannot say I came to say I must be going. I'm glad I came, but just the same, I must be going. When I was a child, I lived in a fourth floor apartment in a five-story pre-war walk-up building. On the second floor lived an older Italian couple, Mr. and Mrs. LaRucci. I say older because that's how they appeared to me at the time. I might be older now than they were then. Anyway, the LaRucci's were the first cat people I had ever encountered. They religiously fed the local strays, rain or shine, in sickness and in health, in an alcove behind the building. Their diligence, effectiveness, and focus clearly inspired my mother and sister to become cat ladies and animal lovers for life. To just a slightly lesser degree, both me and my dad were influenced by witnessing all the animal-based altruism. Anyway, it was while dwelling in that building that I first showed signs of early onset activist syndrome. To follow are but two of my many symptoms. When I was a young child, I understood that A, the war in Vietnam was becoming increasingly unpopular, and B, being on TV is a really big deal to most people. So it was while hanging out on the stoop with my grade school friends, not far from the 59th Street Bridge connecting Queens to the east side of Manhattan, that the seven-year-old me hatched a cynical scheme to allegedly capitalize on those two facts. About six of us created our very own anti-war protest amidst the high volume of motor vehicles streaming down Crescent Street on their way to the city. Now, Queens may be one of New York's five boroughs, but for us, only Manhattan is and will ever be the city. Well, while mimicking the images we saw nightly on our, our black and white TV sets, we made rudimentary signs and posters. One of my fellow subversives, subversives wasn't a regular on the block. He was a little older than me, perhaps a classmate of my big sister. I can't remember his full name, but I recall that his last name was Castro and that he later became notorious for ending up in the hospital after at attempting to ride a motorized minibike down a flight of concrete steps. By the time I was in my teens, I heard a rumor that Castro had died during the commission of a crime. Considering how many of my childhood friends ended up in jail or dying young, or both, this was a rumor to be taken at face value. But anyway, I could still see Castro's chastened expression when I scolded him for a misspelling on his sign. Spot the war, it said, S-P-O-T. I insisted he correct it. We were going to be on TV, after all. With or without proof proofreading, we enthusiastically held up our protest posters to passing cars and trucks and yelled, stop the war, until our prepubescent voices grew hoarse. Someone will call the news, I promised, and we'll all be on TV tonight. Our children's crusade lasted maybe 20 minutes. When it neither ended the war nor landed us on TV, we got bored. One by one, we heard our mother's voices calling us to dinner from different windows of the tenement buildings looming above us. Hunger trumped revolution, and the experiment was over. I don't believe any of us ever mentioned it again. Today, that same anti-war demo or rally or protest or march or whatever would have had its own social media event page. It would have been live streamed. And it would have been deemed a success if it garnered even just one of us a kick-ass Facebook profile pic for which we could use the caption, hashtag warrior. 
A few years after I organized that feudal anti-war demonstration, I first saw the movie Duck Soup on television. Instantly, I was hooked on the Marx Brothers, but I had a problem. You see, this was long before YouTube and streaming services. It was even before VHS players and video stores. To see more of the Marx Brothers, I had to just hope that one of the local New York City channels, 5, 9, or 11, would randomly show one of their films. So after I caught a couple or more of the Marxsters movies, I grew tired of waiting for the rest, so I hatched another plan. With help from my mom, I found the names and addresses for the directors of programming of the local channels. Easier said than done in the pre-Google days of yore. I hand-wrote three passionate petitions requesting slash demanding more Marx Brothers movies be shown on their stations, and I brought the documents to my Catholic grammar school. I was popular enough and cool enough to convince, cajole, or coerce all of my classmates to sign. Feeling mighty proud of myself, I mailed off all three petitions and sat back to wait for a steady supply of Harpo, Chico, Zeppo, and Groucho. The weeks and months passed with no change in local programming and no reply from any of the stations. All the necessary lessons about activism were right there in front of me, but I wasn't yet ready to learn. Not even close. That would take decades. Now, this brings me back to Mr. and Mrs. LaRucci. While I was trying to spot the war and spread Marxism on TV, my cat-loving neighbors just kept feeding and caring for the local strays. Regardless of weather or personal issues, they fulfilled their chosen mission. That's because cat ladies get results, unlike activists. A cat lady understands urgency when she encounters it. She also accepts her limitations and works around them. From there, she basically behaves like a triage nurse. As a result, she gets results. Day after day, felines within her reach are fed and have safe havens in which to hide. If they fall ill or are injured, they will be promptly cared for with dignity. When others in the general area see a sick, hungry, or injured, or even threatened cat, they know who to contact, the local cat lady. No delusions of grandeur about shifting global conditions or changing the conversation. No social media fame. Just effectiveness. That's the lesson I eventually learned all those years later about being effective. So to all the woke activists out there still virtue signaling their way onto my newsfeed, I have this message from a song by Groucho Marx. I don't know what you have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. Now that does it for episode nine and for the year 2021. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll make a New Year's resolution to subscribe to Post Woke for as little as $5 a month and spread the word. And no matter what you do in 2022, remember, keep your guard up. I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it.